Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks for Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. In these times, I think we have to double check. What day is it? What are we up to today? Well, it's Saturday in Medora, North Dakota. Approach 80 degrees. Uh, we're going to get out and catch up on some of those uh, chores in the yard, those yard chores that, that need doing and, and give a wave hello to the neighbors one might not have seen. I know here in the Badlands, we'll probably have some people out for a drive out in the uh, open air. The National Park, Theodore Roosevelt National Park, will not open uh, for one more week. Uh, under the current schedule, that'll be May 9th. Uh, we hope to uh, see folks coming to enjoy uh, the uh, beautiful Theodore Roosevelt National Park in the days ahead. On this date in history, May 2nd, we're going to celebrate just two birthdays. And to celebrate birthdays of despots, uh, this particular despot, uh, Catherine the Great, Catherine II of the Russian Empire, born on this date in 1729, born Sophie of Anhalt-Zerbst in Prussia. Uh, there were so many principalities, kingdoms, and duchies uh, uh, in, those, uh, in that era of the uh, 18th century, uh, hundreds indeed. Uh, this is a, or a century prior to German unification under uh, Bismarck and Hindenburg, uh, Italian unification under Garibaldi, the consolidation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, so this is one of those marriages arranged to uh, knit together royal families. And uh, Catherine uh, marries Peter III. Uh, when his mother, uh, the Empress of uh, Russia, dies, Peter III uh, ascends to the throne of the empire and lives but briefly. For within a short period, months of his ascending to the throne in 1762, he is overthrown in a coup d'etat by his wife, Catherine II. And we'll learn how she becomes Catherine the Great. Catherine I is the wife of Peter the Great. And he's famous for Christianizing and Westernizing the great Russian Empire, the solidification of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, within the uh, upper realms of Russian uh, society. But it's uh, in the reign of Catherine the Great that runs from 1762 until 1796 
uh, the, the longest ruling female leader, that a, a great deal of a, a further westernization, or at least what we might call the uh, the Catherinian re uh, reign is often uh, called the Russian Enlightenment. Uh, the support of the uh, arts and museums, uh, granting of more rights to the nobility. Also a time of significant expansion of the Russian Empire. Uh, the division uh, uh, of Lithuania, Poland, uh, those regions. Uh, the defeat of the Ottoman Empire and the taking of uh, uh, an area uh, in Ukraine, uh, the Crimean Peninsula, and uh, Crimea uh, much uh, in the news as uh, the Russians have uh, occupied uh, that uh, region again after a time of autonomy in, in uh, the government of, the, of Ukraine. Uh, Catherine uh, the Great uh, uh, is uh, a an, an person who will actually be uh, referenced in remarks made by Theodore Roosevelt on May 2nd, 1913. So we'll keep you waiting for that for just a moment. 1860, also in Europe, uh, uh, Theodore Herzl born uh, in uh, what would be the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Theodore Herzl uh, should be known uh, by uh, all who study the history of the world for uh, he is the father of Zionism. Uh, himself uh, uh, a Jew growing up in, uh, in uh, Eastern Europe, uh, he became uh, uh, quite known as a scholar and a writer, an advocate, uh, uh, hosted uh, the first international convention on the establishment of a, a state in, uh, uh, in what was Palestine. Uh, his uh, uh, his uh, writings include uh, uh, the State of Israel. Uh, he uh, was someone who advocated the creation of a modern Jewish state. And so um, after the creation of that Jewish state, his remains were brought from Europe uh, to, uh, to be uh, re-entombed, uh, reinterred uh, in Jerusalem. It is now atop uh, Mount Herzl that you'll find his grave. And uh, his name is actually mentioned in the Declaration of Independence uh, uh, founding the State of Israel. The, uh, the connection of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, of course, is uh, strong in this regard. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was the first president to advocate for a Jewish homeland in the region uh, now known as Israel. Uh, after his presidency, when the Balfour Declaration was issued in 1917, he declared, quote, it is entirely proper to start a Zionist state around Jerusalem, for peace would only happen if Jews were given Palestine. And you'll find actually that in his speeches towards the conclusion of the, the war, when we were putting uh, through our efforts to defeat uh, Germany, that vision of what the post-war world would look like, very often in his public speeches, uh, Theodore Roosevelt was concerned about the uh, independence of the Armenians uh, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, following the slaughter and genocide of the Armenians by the Turks, also concerned about the establishment of an, a Jewish state uh, in Palestine. Ask and ye shall receive my friend uh, John Olson from Ankeny, Iowa, uh, wanted to see a little bit about women's suffrage. We are indeed throughout the year celebrating uh, the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which uh, finally granted uh, the federal right for women to, uh, to vote. Uh, this, uh, of course, occurred in August when Tennessee became the 36th of the 48 states to ratify. Ratified uh, by legislatures is how we uh, amend the Constitution. Uh, in this particular case, uh, by the method where 
uh, Congress first initiated the amendment with a vote in June of 1919, and then uh, the uh, state legislatures confirming that, needing three quarters of the state and two thirds of the votes in Congress. Uh, but then uh, in each state legislature, likely just by majority vote, and the Senate of Tennessee voted uh, in the affirmative, and then in the House, by one vote, did Tennessee become the uh, the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment and make it effective for the country. But Theodore Roosevelt, on May 2nd, 1913, uh, made his first public speech uh, at an event which was uh, specifically uh, arranged for the promotion of women's suffrage and his first speech at length in favor of women's suffrage. Take the uh, calendar back to 1912 and the Progressive Party uh, adopts women's suffrage as a, a portion of its platform. And uh, in 1918, Theodore Roosevelt will advocate an affirmative vote uh, for uh, women's suffrage in New York in 1918. And must assume that when something was on the ballot in 1915, he would have done so as well. The remarks today, May 2nd, 1913, I asked my friend John Olson, find a, find a hook for me out there in women's suffrage for this on this date sort of uh, connection that we use. And, and I was delighted that within minutes we found a an opportunity to uh, quote president uh, referred to in the press as Colonel Roosevelt at that time on this date in 1913. I've only got a portion of his remarks here. Uh, I'll send to uh, Mr. Olson a, a complete article in a different format. But um, Theodore Roosevelt in the remarks that we won't quote, he notes that civilization in the case of the United States on this issue has rolled from west to east. Our neighboring state of Wyoming is known as the equality state in part because in 1869 as a territory, uh, Wyoming was the first uh, uh, constituency in the United States, uh, the first jurisdiction, the territory of Wyoming granted women's suffrage in 1869. And some of these Western states to follow, Utah in 1870, where because they held an election prior to Wyoming, it's actually the first state in which, or the territory in which women voted universally, uh, uh, Wyoming having a, a later election. Colorado in 1893, Idaho in 1896. So it's the Western states and fully a, a third of the uh, continental United States that had granted women's suffrage uh, by the time of the uh, remarks of Theodore Roosevelt in 1913. The, uh, the issue was seen as one uh, with a, a lot of opposition. There's a group called the Antis that I'll mention here in the headline of the article. Uh, the uh, the antis sometimes could be quite disruptive. Early movements from the time of the uh, Women's Convention at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. Think of uh, 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 Susan B. Anthony, uh, 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 Katie Stanton. Um, these are the, uh, the ladies that gathered there and then uh, continued to spread the movement for women's rights and suffrage. Ultimately uh, culminating in this federal amendment to the Constitution, Amendment 19, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Uh, one of the simplest and neatest amendments. But then in this move for women's suffrage, the antis could become quite uh, vocal and disruptive. Uh, the antis included prominent uh, uh, women and uh, uh, icons of uh, culture and society. but. Theodore Roosevelt early on, um, he's Johnny come lately to women's suffrage, isn't he? he didn't didn't do much, if anything, in seven and one half years as president of the United States when his influence was greatest. Uh, he said it was uh, uh, it was a uh, 
It was an issue that was uh, probably uh, the right thing to do, but not a very important thing. Theodore Roosevelt prejudged women's suffrage and assumed that uh, the woman would just multiply the vote of her husband and, and uh, that uh, the household would now vote that way. There were others that were concerned that the great women's movements, uh, temperance and reform and improvement would be now divided by partisanship. And so uh, the Colonel came out in public for a great convention held at the Metropolitan Opera House of New York City on this date, May 2nd, 1913. And this is for my friend. My alter ego is Theodore Roosevelt when I'm on stage. Uh, uh, John Olson's alter, alter ego is Dr. Vote, probably one of the world's finest collectors of pro-vote uh, uh, paraphernalia, buttons, posters, and that sort of thing, but also a, a wonderful historian of the progress of the right and responsibility of voting. So uh, for my friend John Olson. Uh, this taken from the New York Times of May 3rd, and again, these are just a little brief in part sort of a thing. It says he spoke for an hour. Roosevelt, center of suffrage host. Crowded Metropolitan Opera House cheers the colonel's defense of his faith. Voice of antis is still not a protest against call to U.S. Senate to pass bill. Pageant enlivens eve of parade. Seems Colonel Theodore Roosevelt's remarks were part of a great tableau, a pageant that uh, uh, women speechifying was still something that was uh, quite controversial, but doing a play that represented uh, the advance of liberty uh, was apparently uh, much more uh, broadly acceptable for the New York Times of May 3rd, 1913. Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, appearing for the first time on the stump as an advocate of votes for women, was easily the lion of the hour at the pageant tableau given last night at the Metropolitan Opera House under the auspices of 10 suffrage organizations. Every seat in the Opera House was occupied, every box subscribed for, and hundreds of men and women who felt that they were fortunate to obtain tickets of admission after the standing room only sign was hung out, crowded the aisles. When the curtain finally went up, 20 uh, uh, men and women rose to their feet, waving American flags and suffrage pennants. To jump right into a quote of Theodore Roosevelt uh, in his remarks, the theory of the progressive nowadays was to so conduct the government that the average man could do his duty without neglecting his home. Now, all we propose to do is to get his partner alongside of him. I don't say it isn't possible for any number of first-class citizens to be frightened at new ideas. I know that from personal experience, but they get over their fright. Several questions put to Colonel Roosevelt by Miss Ida Tarbell in a letter, the Colonel answered, adding that he thought she was competent to vote if she was competent to tell him why he should vote. Then he added, if you ask the finest and most musty old conservative to tell you something dear to his heart, and he knows something about history, he will tell you that the greatest sovereign of England was Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth, that the second most powerful ruler of Russia was Catherine, and the greatest Austrian ruler, Maria Theresa. What we say is that when you get women like that, we should be allowed to use them for the public good in the way that they can do the most good. 
The colonel then said that he had found it of the greatest value to consult women in many of the great problems of today. It's interesting what uh, Theodore Roosevelt might allude to there is the fact that uh, uh, while women could, in, in places they won the right to vote, separately the right to actually serve in public office and be elected to the offices for which they were voting, uh, sometimes was separated and came separately from the uh, right of suffrage. And uh, the advance of women's suffrage continued on through the uh, 20th century, uh, not coming to uh, uh, Switzerland, I believe, until 1971. So a little bit on women's suffrage. We'll get into a few speeches of Theodore Roosevelt on May 2nd. It's, a, as I titled, a potpourri. Uh, instead, I, I think uh, with our, our birthdays, uh, we should call it a smorgasbord. Uh, we'll look forward to when the buffet becomes a part of American culture again. But now a little sampling and a little uh, of this and that from Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, I do believe every one of these speeches now will be from his presidency. Two speeches on May 2nd, 1902 in Annapolis, Maryland at the graduation of the Naval Academy uh, and then at uh, at the Sons, the Society of the Sons of the American Revolution in Washington, D.C., Later comments at Gallaudet uh, College, the famous College for the Deaf in Washington, D.C., and uh, then concluding with remarks at the unveiling of a statue of George B. McClellan. Uh, one commenter asked yesterday, why would anyone in the world want to have a statue to George B. McClellan? And uh, maybe we'll give Theodore Roosevelt a right to respond uh, in, these, uh, in these remarks. Annapolis, Maryland, May 2nd, 1902. Gentlemen of the graduating class, in receiving these diplomas, you become men who above almost any others of the entire union are to carry henceforth ever present with you the sense of responsibility, which must come if you are worthy of wearing the uniform, which must come with the knowledge that on some tremendous day it may demand upon your courage, your preparedness, your skill in your profession, whether or not the nation is again to write her name on the world's roll of honor or is to know the black shame of defeat. We all of us earnestly hope that the occasion for war may not arise, but if it has to come, then this nation must win. And as Dr. Winston has pointed out, in winning the prime factor must of necessity be the United States Navy. If the Navy fails us, then we are doomed to defeat. It should therefore be an object of prime importance for every patriotic American to see that the Navy is built up and that it is kept to the highest point of efficiency, both in personnel and material. Above all, it cannot be too often repeated to those representatives of the nation in whose hands the practical application of the principle lies that in modern naval war, the chief factor in achieving triumph is what has been done in the way of thorough preparation and training before the beginning of the war. It is what has been done before the outbreak of war that counts most. After the outbreak, all that can be done is to use to best advantage the great war engines and the seamanship, marksmanship, and general practical efficiency which have already been provided by the forethought of the national legislature and by the administrative ability through a course of years of the Navy Department. A battleship cannot be improvised. It takes years to build. 
we must learn that it is exactly as true that the skill of the officers and men in handling a battleship aright can likewise never be improvised, that it must spring from use and actual sea service, and from the most careful, zealous, and systematic training. You to whom I am about to give these diplomas now join the ranks of the officers of the United States Navy. You enter a glorious service, proud of its memories of renown. You must keep ever in your minds the thought of the supreme hour which may come when what you do will forever add to or detract from that renown. Some of you will have to do your part in helping construct the ships and the guns which you use. You need to bend every energy toward making these ships and guns in all their details the most perfect of their kind throughout the world. The ship must be seaworthy, the armament fitted for best protection to the guns and men, the guns and all their mechanism fit to do the greatest possible execution in the shortest possible time. Every detail, whether of protection to the gun crews, of rapidity and sureness in handling the ammunition and working the elevating and revolving gear, or of quickness and accuracy in sighting, must be thought out far in advance, and the thought carefully executed in the actual work. But after that has been done, it remains true that the best ships and guns, the most costly mechanism, are utterly valueless if the men have not been trained to use them to the best possible advantage. From now on throughout your lives, there can be no slackness in the performance of duty on your part. Much has been given you and much will be expected from you. Your duty must be ever present with you, waking and sleeping. You must train yourselves and you must train those under you in the actual work of seamanship, in the actual work of gunnery. If the day for battle comes, you will need all that you possess of boldness, skill, determination, ability to bear punishment, and instant readiness in an emergency. Without these qualities, you can do nothing. Yet even with them, you can do but little if you have not had the forethought and set purpose to train yourselves and the enlisted men under you, under you aright. Officers and men alike must have the sea habit. Officers and men alike must realize that in battle, the only shots that count are the shots that hit, and that normally the victory will lie with the side whose shots hit oftenest. Of course, you must have the ability to stand up to the hammering, the courage, the daring, the resolution to endure, but I take it for granted you will have those qualities. It is less to be thought to your credit to have them than it would be eternally to your discredit to lack them. I take it for granted you will have the courage we have a right to expect to go with American seamanship, that you will have the daring and the resolution. And I ask that you make it from now on your object to see that if ever the day should arise, your courage, your readiness, your eager desire to win fresh renown for the flag be made good by the training you have given yourselves and those under you in the practical work of your profession in seamanship and gunnery. Why, I'm inspired to shoot right. At the banquet that evening uh, of the Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, Mr. Toastmaster, Mr. President, compatriots, and fellow Americans, 
It is a pleasure to take part in greeting you this evening. Societies that cultivate patriotism in the present by keeping alive the memory of what we owe to the patriotism of the past fill an indispensable function in this republic. You come here tonight from every quarter, from every state of the republic, and from the islands of the eastern seas. The republic has put up its flag in those islands, and the flag will stay there. I am glad to meet you here tonight the descendants of the statesmen and soldiers who fought to establish this country in 1776. Some of the older among whom and the fathers of the others fought with no less valor, wearing the blue or the gray in the Civil War. May we now show our fealty to the great men who did the great deeds of the past, not alone by word, but by deed. May we prove ourselves true to them, not merely paying homage to their memory, but by so shaping the policy of this great republic as to make it evident that we are not unworthy of our sires. They did justice, and we will do justice. They did justice as strong men, not as weaklings. We will show ourselves strong men and not weaklings. Before me, I see men who lived in iron times, men who did great deeds. I see here a delegate from Kentucky who served under Farragut in the great days of the Civil War. I see a descendant of a man from Connecticut who was called Brother Jonathan. All around these tables are gathered men the names of whose ancestors stand not only for righteousness, but also for strength, for both qualities, gentlemen. Righteousness finds weakness but a poor yoke fellow. With righteousness must go strength to make the righteousness of avail. And in the names of the mighty men of the past, I ask each man here to do his part in seeing that this nation remains true in deed, as well as in word, to the ideals of the past. To remember that we can no more afford to show weakness than we can afford to do wrong. Where wrong has been done by anyone, the wrongdoer shall be punished. But we shall not halt in our great work because some man has happened to do wrong. Honor to the statesmen of the past, and may the statesmen of the present strive to live up to the example they set. Honor to the army and navy of the past, and honor to those gallant Americans wearing the uniform of the American Republic, who in the army and the navy of the present day uphold gloriously the most glorious traditions of the past. Another thing, compatriots of the Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, we are Americans. And that means that we treat Americanism primarily as a matter of spirit and purpose. And in the broadest sense, we regard every man as a good American, whatever his creed, whatever his birthplace, if he is true to the ideals of this republic. Today, I have been down to Annapolis to see the graduating class of the Naval Academy, and it would have done your hearts good to have seen those fine, manly, upstanding young fellows who looked every man straight in the face without flinching. We, might, we may be sure that the honor of the Republic is in, it's safe in their hands. I was glad to meet those young fellows today. I am glad to meet representatives of the Navy like you, Admiral Watson, and of the Army like you, General Breckinridge. 
I am glad that we as Americans have cause to be proud of the Army and the Navy of the United States, of the men who in the past have upheld the honor of the flag and of their successors, the soldiers and sailors of the present day, who during the last three years have done such splendid work in the inconceivably dangerous and harassing warfare of the Eastern tropics. After his election in 1904 by the largest electoral vote and popular vote plurality in a contested election to that date, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, rather than operating as a, a lame duck, as sometimes we say uh, he had to for having uh, announced he wouldn't seek election in 1908. Instead, there's a, a great deal of accomplishment in the uh, Roosevelt administration, in part because he had the American people behind him. Uh, he went to Gallaudet College in May of 1906, on this date, May 2nd. He spoke to uh, the president of Gallaudet College and, and to the graduating class, realizing, of course, Gallaudet College, uh, the first college for the deaf in the United States. He makes a reference here to being surprised that those uh, deaf students were able to do a, a college cheer as other colleges would do. And uh, 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 brief remarks, Gallaudet College. Mr. President, members of the graduating class and their friends and kinsfolk, when I got here today, I felt as if the president had brought me here under false pretenses because I was received with a football cheer. And while I already knew of your prowess, uh, both on the gridiron and the diamond, I did not know that you were able to cheer the 11 and the nine in the usual canonical college fashion. Let me say what a great pleasure it has been to come here to see you and to listen to you. While here, I want to say a word of special appreciation about the essay of Mr. Rouse, and in particular because he laid such emphasis upon two really noteworthy volumes by an American writer produced of recent years, Mr. Crothers, The Gentle Reader and The Pardoner's Wallet. I am sorry for any book lover who knows the English language and has not in his library those two really noteworthy pieces of wise and humorous presentations of subjects that ought to be presented. Mr. Crothers has rendered a very substantial service to American literature, and I am glad to have listened to the tribute paid to him. In conclusion, let me say a word in the way of hearty tribute to you who have done the great work of teaching in this institution, to those who profit by that teaching. Your task has been hard, but in this life it is not the easy tasks. It is the hard tasks, well done, that give real benefit to those doing them. Brief remarks at Gallaudet, and this is uh, why I love getting into Teddy talks and what he actually said uh, on the stump. First, can you imagine a, a president referencing a, a couple of literary works during brief remarks, but when he says that uh, uh, he's sorry for any book lover who knows the English language and has not in his library those two really noteworthy pieces of wise and humorous presentations of subjects that ought to be presented. Theodore Roosevelt is speaking of two books, one titled The Gentle Reader, and the other titled The Pardoner's Wallet. They're written by a Mr. Crothers. I must admit, normally I would have liked to have dug that up and read those works and had that uh, before my presentation, but I don't know if you could find a copy of either of those books. Uh, was the stamp of, uh, I'm sure that there was great impact in sales if Theodore Roosevelt was being quoted as saying that somebody's book was worthwhile. I, 
I don't know if it had the Oprah effect for a, a book endorsement or not, but it certainly has me wanting to at least go to. There's a wonderful source for those of you that might like antique books, Abe's Books, A-B-E. And uh, I'm going to be looking for Mr. Crothers, The Gentle Reader and The Pardner's Wallet, a, a Western cowboy sort of uh, uh, John Wayne greeting of Howdy Pardner, if you search that title. Finally, to wrap up, the unveiling of the statue to Major General George B. McClellan. I mentioned the uh, uh, the uh, a doubt that one of our viewers had with regards to uh, why would anybody make a, a, a statue to McClellan. Of course, it was Lincoln who lamented that he just couldn't get McClellan to get on the offensive against the Confederacy that would have probably been knocked back on its heels had we been more aggressive. And also McClellan, who would be a Democratic candidate for the presidency against his former commander-in-chief in 1864, and, and perhaps uh, uh, the, uh, the peace at any price and, and uh, relationship with the copperheads of the South, the, the Democrats who wanted to see some sort of uh, um, uh, accommodation of the Confederacy. So let's find out what Theodore Roosevelt had to say about that. May 2nd, 1907, uh, the... Uh, uh, the statue unveiled in Washington, D.C. Men of the Army of the Potomac, and you, my friends and fellow citizens, it is with profound pleasure that as President of the United States, I today take part in the unveiling of a monument to one of its leading soldiers of the Civil War. Naturally, on behalf of the nation, I greet with peculiar pleasure Mrs. McClellan, and her son on this occasion. Next only to them, I take special pleasure in greeting the comrades of General McClellan, you, the generals, the officers, and the enlisted men who fought under him in the mighty days. Let me here, General King, express my peculiar appreciation of the honor conferred upon me in electing me to honorary membership in the Society of the Army of the Potomac an honor previously conferred upon my lamented predecessor, President McKinley. The war that I took part in was a little war, but it was all the war there was. And we tried to show that we at least had the desire to act as you men of the mighty days would wish those who came after you to act. I desire also to say a special word of greeting to the governor of New Jersey and to the troops of New Jersey who have come here to pay homage to the memory of their revered fellow citizen. To General McClellan, it was given to command in some of the hardest fought battles and most important campaigns in the great war of this hemisphere, and so that his name will be forever linked with the mighty memories that arise when we speak of Antietam and South Mountain, Fair Oaks and Malvern, so that we never can speak of the great army of the Potomac without having rise before us the figure of General McClellan, the man who organized and first led it. There was also given to him the peculiar gift, one that is possessed by but few, uh, very few men, to combine the qualities that won him the enthusiastic love and admiration of the soldiers who fought with and under him, and the qualities that in civil life endeared him peculiarly to all who came in contact with him. Let me say a word of acknowledgement of a special kind to the committee who are responsible for the statue. It has been said of some modern statuary that it added a new terror to death. But I wish on behalf of those who live in the capital of the nation to express my very profound acknowledgements 
to those who had the good taste to choose a great sculptor to do this work. I thank them for having erected here in so well chosen a site, a statue which, not only because of the man it commemorates, but because of its own intrinsic worth, adds to the nobility and beauty of the capital city of the country. As has been already well said today, you men of the Great War, you veterans here, need no statue, need no shaft to recall you to the memory of your fellow countrymen. You have as your perpetual monument the country itself. We have today a country, a government, a national capital, a flag, only because of what you and your comrades did in the Civil War. Above all, you left us not merely the heritage left by all good soldiers to their country, the heritage of the right to take glory in your own achievements, but you have the peculiar honor, the peculiar good fortune to leave to your countrymen the right to take pride also in the achievements of their fellow countrymen who were at the time your gallant foes, the men who are now your brothers, knit by the events of that war with you and their descendants with yours in a real union forever indissoluble. We have become accustomed to accepting as a matter of course certain things which would be well nigh impossible in any country save ours, so that it seems most natural that the President of the United States, when he drives down to take part in a celebration like this, should have as his personal aides both the sons of the men who wore the blue and the sons of the men who wore the gray. As Americans, when we glory in what was done under Grant, Sherman, Thomas, Sheridan, McClellan, Farragut, we can no less glory in the valor and the devotion to duty as it was given to them to see the duty of the men who fought under Lee and Stonewall Jackson and the Johnsons and Stuart and Morgan. Men of the Army of the Potomac, not only have you left us a united land, not only have you left us the material heritage which your hands wrought, but you have left us by what you did in your lives certain lessons which apply as much in peace as in war lessons, lessons which are sometimes only painfully learned in war, which are sometimes quickly forgotten in peace. First of all, among these lessons necessary for our people to keep ever in mind, I would put the fact that the life worth living is the life of endeavor, the life of effort, the life of worthy strife to accomplish a worthy end. We have listened recently to a great deal of talk about peace, it is the duty of all of us to strive for peace, provided that, that it comes on the right terms. I believe that the man who really does best work for the state in peace is the very man who at need will do well in war. If peace is merely another name for self-indulgence, for sloth, for timidity, for the avoidance of duty, have none of it. Seek the peace that comes to the just man armed, who will dare to defend his rights if the need should arise. Seek the peace granted to him who will wrong no man and will not submit to wrong in return. Seek the peace that comes to us as the peace of righteousness, the peace of justice. Ask peace because your deeds and your powers warrant you in asking it. Do not put yourself in the position to crave it as something to be granted or withheld at the whim of another. If there is one thing which we should wish as a nation to avoid, it is the teaching of those who would reinforce the lower promptings of our hearts and so teach us to seek only a life of effortless ease, of mere material comfort. 
The material development of this country, of which we have a right to be proud, provided that we keep our pride rational and within measure, brings with it certain great dangers. And one of those dangers is the confounding of means and ends. Material development means nothing to a nation as an end in itself. If America is to stand simply for the accumulation of what tells for comfort and luxury, then it will stand for little indeed when looked at through the vistas of the ages. America will stand for much, provided only that it treats material comfort, material luxury, and the means for acquiring such as the foundation on which to build the real life, the life of spiritual and moral effort and achievement. The rich man who has done nothing but accumulate riches is entitled to but the scantiest consideration. To men of real power of discernment, he is an object rather of contempt than of envy. The test of a fortune should be twofold, how it was earned and how it is spent. It is with the nation as it is with the individual. Looking back through history, the nation that we respect is invariably the nation that struggled, the nation that strove toward a high ideal, the nation that recognized in an obstacle something to be overcome and not something to be shirked. The nation is but the aggregate of the individuals. And what is true of national life is and must be true of each of us in his individual life. The man who renders but a poor service to nation or to individual who preaches rest, ease, absence of endeavor is what that, that nation or that individual should strive after. Both you men who fought in blue and your brothers who fought in gray against you, as you look back in your lives through the years that have passed, what is it in those years that you most glory in? The times of ease, the times of fatness, the times when everything went smoothly, smoothly with you? Of course not, because you are men, because you are moved by the spirit of men. What you glory in, what you hope to hand down as undying memories to your children, are the things that were done in the days that brought little pleasure with them, save the grim consciousness of having done each man his duty as his duty needed to be done. Because in those years you had it in, your dauntlessly, uh, in you dauntlessly to do your share in the work allotted to you, your children and your children's children rise up to call you blessed. Who among you now would barter the memories of the dark years of 61 to 65 for any gift that could be given, not a man among you. You have won the right to feel a pride that none other of your countrymen can feel. And you won that right because you sought not the path of ease, but the path of rough, disagreeable, irksome, and dangerous duty. In life as it is today, in time of peace, we do not have to face the difficulties and dangers you had to face. But if we do not face the duties that are ours in your spirit, we shall do them but poorly. We are a good many thousand years short of the millennium yet, but as many as among nations and as among individuals, and our business is to do our own duty and to teach our children to do their duty in a rough workaday world. And we cannot do that duty by fine phrases. There is no use in anything I say here being all right, unless the deeds both of myself and yourselves correspond to the words I speak and to which you listen. That is all that words count for as an index by which you can judge the corresponding deeds, either of the speaker or of the listeners. We cannot do our duty if we let ourselves get a false perspective of life. 
if we substitute ease and pleasure for the conception of duty itself. That is just as true of the man and the woman in private life as it is of the soldier. Consider your friends and associates who were not in the army. Take the younger people. Look at each man and each woman when they have begun to be elderly and compare in real happiness those who have gone through life shirking, getting around and avoiding what was disagreeable and unpleasant with those who have faced and overcome what was disagreeable and unpleasant. You will find that it is the last class who have had the real enjoyment. There is just one person in this country whom I put ahead of any soldier. I do not care whether the soldier wore the blue or whether he wore the gray. I do not care whether he fought through the Civil War, not even if he lost an arm in the Civil War. I put ahead of the soldier the really good woman, the good wife and mother, who has done her duty. She often has a pretty hard time. Each man here knows that it is the woman who often has to do harder work than the hardest worked man. And therefore, the man worth the name will always show a peculiar consideration and tenderness for his helpmeet. For all the women of his household, the man at least has his nights to himself, and the woman with children does not. She has to take care of the children in sickness. She has a greater responsibility for raising them, for giving them the proper training than the man can possibly have. Yet the woman who thus with labor and anxiety brings up her children is blessed among women, blessed among men. I do not pity her in the least. I respect and admire her and hold her worthy of admiration and honor. The selfish creature, man or woman, who reaches old age having achieved ease by shirking duty is to be heartily despised and not envied. Our admiration is reserved for him or for her who has done the real work which makes the next generation able in its turn to do its work in the country. I wish to see the people of this country not merely feel kindly toward their neighbors who do well, for I also wish to see them actuated by a flaming ind indignation toward their neighbors who do ill. I wish to see you peaceful and desirous each to avoid harming his neighbor, and I wish to see you able and desirous each to see that your neighbor does not harm you. A foolish good nature, a weak good nature, incapable of righteous wrath is almost as unfortunate an attribute for a citizen of this democracy as willingness to do wrong on the part of the man himself. If the man hasn't in him the power of being aroused to vehement action when wrong has been done, he can be of no service in combating the manifold wrongs that do exist at present alike in our industrial and in our economic life. The public servant who is only good-natured and well-meaning is not a very useful public servant. If you haven't got it in you to strive manfully against wrong, you will accomplish but little for right. The qualities needed to make a good soldier in their final analysis are the qualities needed to make a good citizen. And the qualities needed alike by soldier in time of war and by all citizens in time of peace are those which in their sum make up the characteristics that tell for a great and righteous people. America must rise level to the ideals of the founders of the nation when they started this mighty republic on the road of self-government. Those ideals in their sum were to be found here, a government of the people, by the people, 
where no one man should wrong his brother, where the nation should not wrong uh, any outsider and should be able to resist aggression from without. I hope to see this nation play an ever-growing part in the affairs of the world. It cannot play that part unless it is willing to accept the responsibilities that go with it. We cannot do our first and primary duty at home within our own borders unless we strive measurably to realize certain ideals. By this, I do not mean merely to talk about them at 4th of July celebrations, to, to speak of them and applaud the speech, and then go home and have neither speaker nor hearer practice what has thus virtually, virtuously been preached. We should say and applaud only what we believe in, and having said it, and having applauded it when said, we should try to put it into practice. When we speak of liberty, when we praise it, let us try to see that in actual practice we achieve it. But when we speak of fraternity, of brotherhood, let us exercise each for himself the qualities that make for brotherhood, for fraternity. When we speak of equality, let us try to realize it in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln, who pointed out that there was, of course, a certain sense in which men are not and cannot be equal, but who realized by his life and his deeds the profound truth that in the larger sense, in the real, the all-important sense, there can and must be an equality among all men. This equality, we of the American Republic, must seek to secure among our fellow citizens it as an equality of rights before the law, a measurable equality of opportunity, so far as we can secure it, for each man to do the best that there is in him without harming his fellows, without hindrance from his fellows. And finally, and most important, it is that equality which we should prize above all else, the equality of self-respect, the mutual respect among each and all of our citizens. Remarks by Theodore Roosevelt, May 2nd, 1907, or was it 06? At the unveiling of the statue, uh, 06, I'm sorry, that was 07, 06 calendar. At the unveiling of the statue for uh, General George B. McClellan. Note to the uh, one viewer that had questioned uh, the, uh, uh, the possibility or, or why that would be. Notice that in the speech, Theodore Roosevelt didn't really pay homage to... Uh, McClellan. He paid homage to the soldiers who fought under McClellan. Uh, he paid homage to uh, uh, Mrs. McClellan and, and McClellan's son in attendance and to the American woman who meets her duty as well. Uh, he uh, uh, gives us a good deal to think about this day. May 2nd, 2020. Enjoy your weekend. Uh, we're uh, going to enjoy ours here in Medora and I'll see you Monday morning, May 4th for Teddy Talks. 26 days with the 26th president during the month of May. Archived the month of April on Spotify and YouTube. Thanks to my friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. Have a bully day.